Hello and welcome to the third season of Life on a Plate, the podcast from Waitrose, in which we talk to some very special people about food, what it means to them, and the role it has played in their life. We ask about food memories and favorite recipes, must-have ingredients, and the dishes that represent comfort, celebration, or adventure, and find out a lot more about our guests in the process. Alison, hello. How are you doing? Hey, I'm all right, thank you. How are you? I'm really good. And uh, yet again, it's because... You've been up to your old tricks. Got another surprise. Yeah, you sent me another intriguing thing to try. And the really good thing about it is it's more ice cream, or at least looks like it's more ice cream. That's right. What's the story behind this one? So this is uh, Waitrose number one chocolate ice cream, and it's got a swirl of blood orange sorbet in it. Try it. Open it and have a spoonful. Have you got a, have you got a bowl? I have. I've got a bowl. I'm going to try and class oh. it up rather than just shovel it in straight from the carton, <laughs> which, you know, I'd be tempted to do because just peeling the lid off, it's really striking, like that deep sort of almost fiery red of the uh, orange sorbet. And it's not just like a little trickle, like this huge kind of um, swirled bits of it. And then you've got a really intense... Dark chocolate. I'm going to dig right down so that I can get a little bit. The oranges are Sicilian blood oranges. So they're grown in Sicily under the foothills of Mount Etna, where you've got really fertile volcanic soil, warm days, cold nights. And the variety has this really intense colour. This is the kind of thing that you will say as you dish it out, uh, some some extra <laughs> volcanic uh, benefits to it. I can't stop eating it, Alison. That's the only problem. Um, I'm just, I'm just going. My sort of world is now this bowl of ice cream and uh, blood orange sorbet. It feels what I really like about it is it's kind of like a ready-made dessert to go. You don't need to add anything else to it. You could just break this out. You know, barbecue yeah. season. You've done a big sort of operation, say, for the actual barbecue itself. You don't want to think too much about the pudding you just break out a few tubs of this i mean this number one ice cream they've got some real corkers in the range they've got um coconut and lime ice cream they've got a delicious strawberry and west country clotted cream ice cream i've been trying a few just for research purposes you see but they're they're some delicious ones (laughs) due diligence take my job seriously you know (laughs) i'm sort of slightly flabbergasted it's really really good thank you so much for sending it over I love it. Well, I mean, much as I would love to uh, just sit and eat and uh, just kind <laughs> of uh, devour food with you, uh, we should get on to talking about this episode's guest. We should. And it is Sat Baines, the hugely acclaimed chef. And he was somebody that you were a bit surprised about your your response to him, right? I so was. Do you know what? All the research we did and all the background, he comes across as being somebody who I got the impression of that he was a bit of an angry chef and he kind of does lots of workouts and is quite hard. But he's got such a soft, caring side to him. And that's really shown the way he cares for his 
team and his chefs and he all the plans that he puts in place and just the way he looks after them. And I kind of came away and thinking, actually, he's got this big, hard image, but at the same time, he's just a real softy too. No, you're right. He's got this kind of confrontational, maybe quite of a unforgiving image in, in the media, but he is, as you say, he was like an absolutely lovely guy. The way he talks about the importance of caring for his staff is really relevant in light of um, all the conversations around hospitality and yes. kind of trying to attract more people to the profession. He talked interestingly about his childhood and his upbringing and how that's really shaped him. He grew up in Derby in a Punjabi household where his dad owned a corner shop and sat, had to work at the corner shop quite a lot, it turns out. And, you know, that Punjabi household work ethic, you know, really instilled this drive in him. But I think he also acknowledged that he'd missed out on things and he'd sort of not been able to to be a kid in the way that his friends were. And that kind of led to some later rebellion, which was yeah. uh, which was quite interesting to hear about. They just showed him some really tough love, if you know what I mean. I think that was that was really clear clear when he spoke about his relationship with Amanda, his now wife and business yeah. partner at Restaurant Sapping, because, you know, at 16, they threw him out because of her. And, you know, that was just tough love. And now that's led to him and his restaurant is now in, in Nottingham. So Yeah, it's been quite a journey and it was a real privilege to hear him map out that journey. And it's so unlikely, both his success at this kind of restaurant that's got two Michelin stars and is like under a flyover and a pylon in the sort of deepest, darkest Nottingham. But he talks about the importance of that in such a vivid, uh, beautiful way. And uh, he was he was great and he was the most pleasant sort of surprise. So here he is. Here is our interview with Sat Baines. Sat Baines, hello. Hello, how are you? Hey. Yeah, really, really good. Lovely to see you. You're looking well. I wanted to start off by talking about when I've spoken to a lot of chefs that have come out of this quite difficult period. Um, they've talked about the kind of changing of their role and having to almost be like psychiatrists as well as bosses in the traditional way and really help people through. How have you found that and how have you responded to that? Uh, we kind of, about five Four or five years ago, sorry, 2015, we changed our whole dynamic and approach to running the restaurant. So what we did is we thought, what is it these young, very talented people that come into our industry, what do they want? They want a career path. They want to get paid well. They want time off. They want good holiday. They want pension. They want health insurance. And also with their health insurance comes counselling. So what we did is we 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 took a, a big leap of faith and we went to a four-day week. So we closed Tuesdays. We opened Wednesday to Saturday. So that means the whole building's closed from Sunday right through to, to Wednesday. And it's very psychological because what happens is when you work in a six- or seven-day operation and you have two days off, you still kind of are conscious of what's going on at work because you still got to go in almost running to catch up with where everyone else is. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah, never fully switch off. Yeah, so where mm. you close the door, there's that relief where your shoulders drop. Nothing can happen Yeah, yeah. on their section because no one's there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's no there's no one looking after their station for them or no one looking after their, you know, their, their starter section. And from a kind of like an expressive freedom point of view, they could close that kind of door and say, you know yeah. what, I'm not back to work till Wednesday. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
and it gave them such a great kind of kind of lift, I would say. And I think then we introduced the the, the health insurance. Excuse me, that we were really adamant that it has to have some counselling in there because they're not always going to come to me. They're not always going to go to their friends. They're not always going to the parents. So having it independent, I think you were allowed six hours, you know, which is a lot. You know, we never had that. You know, I've been a chef 33 years. So I thought that's my, my wife's idea of what is it they want. So, yes, pay them really well, give them good time off, look after them. And we also feed them really well. So we have two meals a day, top end, not, not necessarily top end in terms of like foie gras and truffles, but beautiful eggs or beautiful poultry or beautiful salad. And it's got to be, we always have one maxim, it's got to be good enough if you were going to feed it to someone you loved. Yeah, okay. nice. And that, that's, when you that's have fantastic. that, yeah. you have you know, 30, 40 staff and they're all sitting together and they're eating. When we put the same effort we're doing to giving our customers to our team, they feel valued. So there's tiny little psychological little things we've kind of ticked. And I think that's really... So to the to answer to your question is, that's probably been invaluable in this period, but we are always at the end of the phone if they need to talk to us or, or in person. So yeah, it's a strange time. That's for yeah. sure. You have spoken about what you feed the staff being so important. And yeah, you know, Alison and I were talking before about being really fascinated by this idea of, because it's called the family meal, isn't it? And it's very important in restaurants. Yeah. It's massive. It's massive. Yeah. And also, it, it, you know, I had friends, and this is no lie, that would feed their team in a metal bowl. Right. Like a dog bowl. Wow. <laughs> And that, what does that message send to That's not very wow. kind of motivating no. for the stuff. No, but back in yeah, the day, yeah. so yeah. back years ago, yeah. there was top chefs that would feed the trim off the stock pot. Yeah, it's kind of Dickensian almost thinking about that. And, yeah. and that's the problem we've got with our trade, our profession, is it's still got that stigma that you are a workhorse, you don't need to be skilled. You know, we, we've got people that are very highly skilled, very talented, they need nurturing, they need feeding, they need looking after, they need putting on the right path. That's my role now. I'm 50 years old. I've been in the trade 33 years and my wife's been in the trade 35 years. Her mindset is she's looking for little details that people probably miss and she wants them. She she raises the standard of the team like I've seen it happen and it blows my mind that she's got that much sense of detail. So she's always in the background. She doesn't like the... I, well, I don't particularly like the limelight, but I don't. She's <laughs> she's more of a behind the scenes and, and kind of like pushing everyone into the right direction and yeah. picking them up on and just getting that kind of steering the ship. That's yeah. steering the ship. The right. So, give us an example of what the family family meal might be. You know, it's Thursday today. So, what what would you have eaten yesterday? So, we had a panzanella salad with yeah. uh, chicken kebabs, like nice. uh, pure breast. So, you've got your protein, you've got your an avocado, so you've got your fat. Um, you've got your salads, you've got your folic acids and all that. So then, and, and we've also introduced two years ago at 8.30, we do a protein bar, mm. which is high energy. Yeah. Because yeah. in service, chefs are different because they're tasting. But front of house, they, they don't eat after no. 5 o'clock or 4.30. But they're running around. Yeah. So their energies are low. So we've divide, we make a protein bar with whey, cocoa, peanut butter, and it's weighed at 50 grams and they all take turns in little teams to come in the back. And you see their surge of, of number one, joy, because we're looking after them. Number two, they feel nurtured. And number three, they feel that they've got some fuel in them. Yeah. That's going to see them through to the end of the, the night. 
Yeah, yeah, that's so fantastic. So I thought of it like a sports nutritionist. Like, what would you do if you were on a, in a four-hour period of, of training? You would get little bites of like banana or peanut butter or nuts or sultanas. So we've incorporated it all into a bar. And I think, why isn't everyone doing that? Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's yeah. just so mind-blowing. Is it one person's job to do the cooking or do you take it in turns no, around they the all team do and it they cook it together? So they have teams, yeah. So the idea is... The, the teams are, so there'll be one from the, the savory section, two from pastry, one from the back room, and they do parts of the meal each. Yeah. So they all come together because we've tried it where one guy does it and he gets kind of like slaughtered because there's a lot to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's a lot on it, isn't there? Yeah. yeah, there's a lot riding on it. Like it's kind of a, the definition of a tough crowd as well, like loads of two Michelin star chefs. And, uh, and you know what's mad? It, the food the guys eat, can change the mood so drastically. Right, yeah. yeah. But if they know it's being done with like, oh my God, the seasoning's incredible. Oh my God, this piece of fish is incredible, perfectly mm. cooked, as yeah. if it was going out to a guest. But if they see it like got the protein coming out, like the white scum that comes out and it's been left and dried, I think that guy don't care. And they mark his card. You know, I mean, I hope he's not on staff food next time. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So it's amazing how many favours you can win by doing a great meal, because all the staff will go with it. Listen, that was that Bolognese you made with that brown pasta was incredible. That notion of things being cooked with love as well. I've seen you talk about it in relation to your family and your upbringing and food when you were growing up. What did that look like? Uh, I've also seen you talk about it being carnage because of uh, so many uh, family members. I we grew up with a big household. You know, there's, there's six of us in our family. It was three sisters, me and mum and dad. So because we all live in Derby, it's a close-knit community. All my yeah. dad's brothers lived in Derby. So yeah, yeah. weekends was always like a festival. It was always like, <laughs> it was like loads of kids running around. It was very noisy. Like a really noisy childhood. Did you like that noise or were you kind of shrinking away from it? I, I liked it when I was in it because mm. I was young and I was like, yeah, you know, just going crazy like, on, my, on my bike, on my BMX. But I also had to work. So my childhood was a bit mixed up because I had to work from the age of 13 because dad yes. was shot. Yes, yeah. yeah. So I lost a lot of my youth having to do school, then work, school, then work. Right, so, yeah. So I was always a bit like empty where my mates were out playing. I was like, and they'll knock on the door and, with a ball and, and I could hear the bounce on a Sunday afternoon. It'd be like six o'clock. But dad was sending to bed and the light and it was still sunny. Right, and I, that traumatised me for years because I was like, so I rebelled in my thirties and forties. I never went to bed. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I didn't have to. <laughs> but it, it's amazing how childhood plays on on future. It, that's where a lot of our issues come from, anyway. But but growing up was amazing. But the food was amazing. So so mum would cook because she was working. She was a working mum. Food was kind of like a little bit rushed. You know, we talk about this love aspect. So yes, it was tasty, and that's all I knew it was curries. And then on Wednesdays was uh, bangers and mash, and uh, Fridays fish and chips. And Sundays was always meat. So we used to have meat at the weekend. So Gimma is my favourite minced lamb curry with peas. So when we used to eat, you had to sit down at the table six o'clock. You couldn't move. You couldn't watch telly. You had to eat. So it was like discipline. <laughs> you weren't involved in the cooking of it with your mum. No, no interest in cooking whatsoever. <laughs> okay. Because what happens in in an Asian community is that. The men sit in the front room. Mm. Yeah. The women work in the kitchen. Yeah. yeah. And I was like the go-between because I was the oldest nephew. Uh -huh. So I was the guy that would go and take the kind of like kebabs 
all the samosas into the room for the men who were all drinking, then go back to the women. So I'd heard both sides of the story. So my auntie was going, how's your uncle? Is he drunk? I went, no, no, no. Like, he's, he's, he's smashed. Like, so I had to like, and they were like, oi, come here, you. What's he doing? Uh, nothing, because they wouldn't go in. It was hilarious to see the two. But food-wise, you know, we, we grew up with curries. Uh, spinach was my worst curry. I hated it because you'd smell. Because mum would cook it in a pressure cooker. Yeah. And you'd wow. smell it on the way home. And I goes, oh God, I hope, <laughs> oh, it's not my, hope it's not our house. And you'd go and you'd, and you'd know all your clothes for two days are going to smell of spinach. So you had this love hate relationship with, with home cooking because it was always, I wanted the westernized food. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Of and course, we yeah. were cooking Punjabi food. But it's just such a, a weird, like life does its circle. And then now we're doing mum's food. And yeah. Yeah. Well, well, let's go ahead and talk about that because it couldn't be. A sort of neater full circle because you've launched Mama Baines, a business with your mum. Where did this come from? How long was it in the works for? It's it's incredible. Well, in fairness, we thought about lockdown and all, everyone doing boxes and, and doing takeouts. And one thing I've realised is that I'm very um, ad- admirable of the guys that have done it because it's really hard yeah, to get your yeah. restaurant style cuisine onto a box, into a box, onto a plate with someone that's not necessarily skilled to replicate it, paying good money. I just couldn't do it. It takes 14 of us to cook for 35, 40 covers. And I just couldn't fathom the <laughs> physicality. Yeah, yeah. So I thought what's missing in lockdown is community, closeness, family. And it was like, Eureka, like mum's food, mum's food. Like when we left home, so when I said my mum wasn't a great cooker, when we were at school and at home is because she had jobs. So she, it was a chore, you know, when you were a chore, it's like quick, make a, a Brussels sprout curry, but it's delicious. But it was like, you know, it wasn't what you wanted. And then what happened was um, when we left home, mum would invite us back on a Sunday and one sister was in London, one was somewhere else and one mm-hmm. was somewhere else. And we'd all like meet every like six months. And the food was like, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> like, was it this good when we were younger? Or did yeah, we just yeah, get yeah. used to it? And what <laughs> yeah. it was, because we were coming home, mum would spend all day and she would take time and she put love into it. So we could taste it. We're like, oh my God, she's put love in it. And how mad's that when you think about it? It's like, it's the craziest concept, but it's the truth. Like when your siblings or your, your sons and daughters coming home or your children, you want to cook for them, so you spend all yeah. day and making their favourite foods. Yeah, and you sit at a yeah. table, everything goes into the middle of a table with a, a pot. So you have one pot of like aligobi, one of spinach, one of this. Gima, and you just help yourself with a little spoon. And my wife loves aligobi. She loves gima. It's like the best thing you can imagine. So we thought that is what's missing. So we, we spoke to Mitch at True Foods that we use. And True Foods is a company that makes stocks for sauces and he works with Waitrose already. So he works with Heston and all the rest of it. And I said, Mitch, I've got an idea. So it was hilarious. We go up to Yorkshire with mum. We're going with a really small batch of raw ingredients of, say, aligobi or chickpea curry. And we'll make it into like five, two, say, 10 portions. And then we had to scale it to 500. Wow. wow. And it was like, what the hell are we doing? <laughs> getting it and to the taste first... the same on that scale is so you know hard. It was brutal. It was like, oh, God, what have <laughs> done? What's it been like 
working on something with your mum, having your mum as a business partner, like like crossing the streams in that way. I'm never going to do that again. And I advise anyone, <laughs> do not do it. And this is from a man her, who works with his wife. That's totally different. She's got her rules, I've got mine, and we meet in the middle. Yeah, yeah. Mum, you are still eight years old. <laughs> You've not grown up. I've never been, I've never been told off so much, and I'm like... And, you know, I'm 50 years old. I'm like, but mum. And I turned back to be like, mum, shut up. And I'm like, I just said, like a teenager, shut up to mum, my shut mom. up. Yeah, yeah. Like, no, I'm not. And I'm, like, I'm actually rebelling all over yeah. again. Like, I'm like, what am I doing? But it just seems like an amazing continuation or a really sort of new interesting twist in your journey as well. Because yeah. you talked about rebelling there and rebellion and you sort of rebelled in the biggest ways imaginable didn't you like with your career and with you know yeah. with meeting amanda you, you you were effectively yeah. thrown out of thrown out of the house at a young age which i've seen you talk about it and say that it's it was one of the best things that ever happened to you with hindsight but you can't have been fe- feeling that way at the time i think it was i was trapped as a young man i was trapped i was trapped because i was the only only boy i had the family name on my head i had to carry that on a seek seek tradition so there was a lot of pressure on me from a very early age, and I, and I felt it, and I felt a little bit trapped. Amanda was, um, you know, a, a young girl. She was a manager of a, of a restaurant. I was a, a, a commie chef there. And she was, like, you know, like exotic in, to me. And I was like, I've never really gone out with lots of girls. And she, mum, mum found out, dad found out, I was, I, we'll see each other. And straight away, it was one of them. It was like black or white. I was like, okay, are you, are you serious? Because, well, I don't know, but I like her. I got feelings for her. Never really had chance to explain that I was like, it's a, it's a girlfriend because we're allowed girlfriends as a, as, a, as a kid. And then next minute, sister turns up to the restaurant with two bags and says, mum, once you're out. And that was it. Never went back. Oh, Best thing wow. ever happened. So at the time, Manda was in a, she was independent. She had a flat. She left home at 16. So you can imagine what kind of person leaves home at 16 and has their own flat and their own career. I'm like, then this absolute dosser turns up with long hair, with a tash shaped after Prince, who was my idol. Wow. <laughs> and knocked on the door, goes two black bin liners, and goes, Mum, don't walk me back. Can I move in here? She was like, what? Like, she might not have even been serious. <laughs> and we just sat there, we both cried for about an hour, going, what the hell are we going to do now? It's a weird, you know, life is so crazy. You know? No mm. one knows what's around the corner. No one knows how, what, what's going to happen. But at the time, even though I was sad and, I was kind of like relieved. I thought, oh my God, I haven't got to work at the shop. I haven't got all that pressure on me. I haven't got all that kind of weight on my shoulders to, that wasn't expected of me that I didn't even know about, that has just been told, like, what the hell? So I already went to college. I was already doing catering. I already worked in the restaurant. But mm. when even going to college was an issue because mum didn't want me to go to catering college because she thought it was a infeminate. And my oldest sister, Manjit, she said, mum, let him go to college so then I went to college went to went to the restaurant where I met Amanda and then I went I lost my job there because I was a bit of a dosser I went to Nottingham where Amanda's from and she stayed in Derby and I was travelling every day to the Masonic Hall and I worked in this really strange Masonic Freemasons environment wow. I was like what is this so I was there two years went off to went off to various jobs and, and, and yeah, I was a, I was a head chef at a very young age, too young, way too young. I was 24. Didn't know what I was doing. Read Marco, blew my mind. Marco Pierre White's first book, why he blew my mind. And I was like, oh my God, I want to be a chef. 
in terms of your teaching, your culinary education, at some point, French cuisine became the thing and that kind of high level became like a real sort of passion and the thing that you have sort of that your style kind of grew from in a, in a weird way and you talk about Marco there and was there a moment where you were like okay this is the thing this is where I need to put all my energy and where I need to excel I think I was very creative my first passion at school was art and I wish I took I wish I took art or I love I love doing I love sketching I love the, the kind of abstract art I like kind of things that make sense to me is that something you still do? Yeah, I use it a lot. So I've got dishes based on Anish Kapoor, um, his abstract art piece. And, and um, I've got a man, my wife bought me for my birthday, Anish Kapoor print. And it's, uh, sorry, an original and it's all pink. And it's kind of like powdery. And it, and it, straight away it says strawberries and cream. Right. So I'll, yeah, I'll yeah, work yeah. on a dish and I love Rothko. Uh, so I love like geometrical and I love kind of like abstract and I love, things that make sense. Like I, I love circles. So I could mm. have a dish with three circles, but mm. then I have to fill the gaps of what the three circles are and how they complement each other. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You do you doodle dishes first as well. Is that it's right? Mental, you kind yeah. of draw I them. It. I love it. Like I do I do doodles all the time. Like this. Because I was, majority of my training was self-talk. So when I left college, I, I dosed around, got sacked twice, <laughs> went to work for Raymond Blanc and his brasserie at Petit Blanc. Six months, that was it. Went to the scar going under three months. And that was it. I had enough of working for anyone because I thought, this isn't about cooking. This is about someone trying to stitch you up. This is about this this ladder of all these talented young men just trying to tread on you to get to the top. There was no family feeling. There was no camaraderie. There was no like, hey, guys, if you're in the mess, I'll come and help you out and you help me out if I'm in the mess. Everyone was, everyone was just trying to outdo each other with their macho. No one taught. I never spoke about food. And then I came back and I was really disoriented with everything. I went to work in a pub. Again, loved it. Had my own freedom. Kept thinking of the art aspect. Then I ended up working in an art gallery. And what was nice about that, every two weeks or a month, they would change the whole scenery of the whole restaurant. Because I had a restaurant upstairs in the 19 cupboards. And I was their chef. And I was just me and another guy. And I was trying to do all these dishes I'd probably copied from like books or recipes from <laughs> French masters and what I've seen on the internet or whatever. And then I kind of like entered the Rue Scholarship and I was a real underdog, never had the training that you should have. And I entered it and I remember saying to the guy that owned the gallery, I said, I'm going to win. It's my last year I can win. It's the last year I can enter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And all he said is, I know you are. And that was it. <laughs> Do you want to just tell us a little bit more about what the Rue Scholarship is? It's, it's something that chefs often band around. But oh, it's think- massive. So the Rue Brothers, one of the, the, the biggest influence yeah. to modern French gastronomy in Britain. Absolutely, they started the whole movement with the, the first three star in the Gavroche. The Albert and Michel worked out a plan. Hang on, there's not a lot of brilliant chefs out here. Instead of like looking overseas and getting loads of French guys in, why don't we train these guys up and send them to France? give them a chance to work with the best, my mates, all our friends that are in France, all these three stars. So they, they built this scholarship, which is called the Rue Scholarship. And it's like 36 years old now. So the idea was they would take a, a competition, they have an entrance that you've got a, an entry form you fill in of, of, of your who you are and a dish or whatever it is. Then you have to then go to the next round, which is the dish you've submitted, you've got to cook it. Then from there you go to the, to the final. And that's normally a classical dish that you've got to produce in a set time. Classic Escoffier. Escoffier, you know, the godfather of modern cuisine, uh, was with, uh, with uh, was it uh, Ritz at the, at the Savoy and all that. So so he, he 
that, that his repertoire is still used today. He was the first chef. Escoffee was the first chef that introduced the chef to party system, like pastry section. You'd have a commie, a chef to party, a sous chef in that section, uh, larder, god manger, whatever. So you had this kind of structure, which is very military based, which is still used today. So they they were from that era. They brought that to modern times. They introduced this scholarship. The first ever scholar scholar was Andrew Fairley, rest in peace. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, and he was like a massive influence to me. And over the years, I just kept hearing about scholarship and there was someone was going to France, they were going to a three, so he'd read in the caterer. The only chef I ever wanted to work with or for was Michel Brat, who's this phenomenal chef in the Albrecht region, only open six months of the year because the weather's so terrible. And his food's about nature, it's about abstract. He was an artist and I just kind of fell in love with him. And I then applied... He only had two stars. The, 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 the maxim is you've got to work in a three-star. So I already thought, if I won, I'm going to ask, can I work in a two-star? Because I, I, I need to work for this guy. So I entered underdog. So in between entering and getting through to the region, I got, I got the restaurant closed. Right. So the owners turned up at a house, me and Amanda, little two up, two down in Nottingham. And it goes, uh, Sat, got some bad news, we're, we're closing. I was like, what? And that's it, just, just like that. Oh, and we no. just like, what yeah. the hell are we going to do? So the scholarship became this kind of t- tunnel vision. That's my that's my way out. I've got no choice now. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't know if the, the gods are on my side or the fate, whoever's out there, whoever's out there. I've now got to read up. I've got to be ready. And then you get through. Then I go and do the regional. And Rick Stein was a guest judge that year because it was a fish-based main course. Mm-hmm. And I did tuna with pasta puree and spinach and this like the red wine jus. And everyone I remember around me, I could just smell sesame and soy. They were all going down the oriental room. Right, yeah. Right, I got chicken wings on. I was roasting them, making a red wine deglaze. I made a classic red wine jus. So then I'm like, oh my God, this is crazy. 19. And then I get through. And I'm like, what? So there's now six of us in the final at the Four Seasons Hotel in London. I think to myself, I goes, I'm out of work. I've got no job. <laughs> yeah, I'm in the final yeah. with six guys, with six other, five of the guys. One worked at Aubergine, Gordon Ramsay. One worked in a two-star, one worked in a one-star. And there's me that's got no... I'm out of work. I've got no pedigree. So I get there and I already saw two contenders. I thought they're going to nail it. So they gave me the recipe. It was like rack of lamb, French trim, um, sauce palaise, which is like a hollandaise with some mint, tomato concasse, and then some potato rosti, pomana, with with artichokes in between, like um, global artichokes. And the two things I read up the night before at home, which I've not ever prepped, was skate and artichokes. So I was prepping the artichoke like that, and I was looking over there, that guy, like, what's he doing? So I was doing the same. <laughs> So I absolutely blagged it. I remember just sitting there in the line at the front. Michel Roux, rest in peace, senior. Michel Roux starts announcing. And the back then, there was a runner-up and a winner. Yeah. And in my head, who I thought was the winner, they shouted the runner-up. And it wasn't the one I thought, so I thought he's won. So just for a split second, like a crazy, chilling moment, the room went quiet in my own head and I had a tall hat on like a chef's hat. And I sat down like that and I just said, just say my name, just say my name, just say my name, just say my name, just say my name. And they said my full name and, and Satwant Baines. 
and all you heard was Amanda and Peter screaming. <laughs> and I'm in shock. And I get my hat and I lob it. And Michelle picks it up later and he goes, can you sign it? Because I think you're going to be a big star. Oh, wow. What a moment. And uh, I said, I want to go to Michelle Bra. So we write to Michelle Bra. He goes, because i got three stars this year, I'm not taking any stars on. I was like, no. So funny enough, I read Waitrose, Food Illustrated, back in 97, 98. And I remember seeing this spread on Le Jardin Zon, South of France, Two Twins. And they the way that the, the magazine covered it was... It was like five pages and they had their dishes all on glass plates and it was like vibrant, it jumped out. Yeah. Because it was like the, that kind of like, and that Roussillon area of, of France, which is like beautiful vegetables, wine region. And I remember all the chefs lined up, all in white, white jackets, white long aprons, white hats. And the sun was out. There was a white building. It just looked so beautiful. And I thought, that's what jumped out because when I, didn't get the position with Michel Bra. I remember reading that Jacques Laurent worked for Michel Bra in that magazine. I thought, mm-hmm. oh my God. Yeah. I've got to go. So Waitrose saved my life, really. One thing that I really wondered about when you were describing the Rue scholarship there and the other cooks that were doing sort of Asian influenced stuff, and I've seen you talk in the past about your Punjabi heritage and not wanting to be pigeonholed. It feels like we've come so far in terms of, you know, people's appreciation of um, South Asian cooking generally and Punjabi cooking especially. Have you felt kind of more that you can just embrace those things now, like with Mama Bain? It was never about embracing. It was I never mm. wanted to misinterpret interpret my journey because it, it would be too easy to go to Indian food because that's my heritage and I could make it, refined, make it fine dining if you want to call it that. But that's lazy. And also it's too expected. There's a, a level of like a anomaly mm. involved. And people yeah. don't know what what to expect because Sat Baines, Sabin, it could be French. They don't yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. So there's always been that kind of uh, mispronunciation. And there's also an element that I'm quite unattainable because I don't do a lot of things that a lot of guys do. You must have had to like resist that so much. And in terms of, we, we Alison and I were talking about, you know, obviously what you've done with the location, uh, it's comparable to say what Heston did in Bray and what Tom's done in like Marlow, but they've opened other businesses. Have you, have you not kind of wanted to do that sort of same kind of conquest? I'll never say never, but I don't think I've got that in me where I can do several, because here is about the personal journey I've had. And I want you to, to taste that. And that's how it's been for all this time. But I've, ne- I've never thought of, there's been opportunities and there's been possibilities to open other places, but there's a problem I've got with dilution. And that's just me. That's just me. I, I've got a philosophical approach. We live, we enjoy we, we have a certain amount of time on on the planet, make the most of it. And if that's, if that whatever gives you that, is, is it money? Is it peace? Is it love? Whatever it is for me, it's never been money. I've never been money driven. Mine's fulfillment comes from um, outlet of creativity. So that's my richness. If I have a place where I can do that, I don't get me wrong, this could be something in London. Say, oh, Sam, we want you to do a concept in London. You don't have to be there every day, but we want you to, to oversee it. Yeah, that, that's easy. 
that's not too difficult. But this is kind of like where where I love and and, and, and I've, I've I've evolved and, and become who I am. You spoke early on about the effect that Marco Pierre White's book White Heat had on you. Is it true that you have quite a collection of cookery books? I saw something yes, come have, about yeah. eight hundred ten years ago. Easily, yeah. What, wow, what, I've got about a thousand now. Yeah. So what it is? It's, it's, it's again, it's irony. Isn't it? It's like when you're young, right? You save up each month. You get paid, and then you you find you've got like say for thirty quid less. Because all men's want to buy a book. I've seen Nico's or Raymond Block's new book or Ramsey's, and you read it cover to cover like preciously. Yeah. Right, and then you almost like, oh my god, and you 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 absorb all that in, and his story, and you look at his restaurants, and say, oh my god, one day I want to go to his restaurant. And what happened is, as you got older, you got books sent to you. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that like chefs are now sending three, four books a month. I'm like, oh my god. So you don't you don't longer you no longer read them. So now it's become a bit of a library. And when you're cooking at home, how much of them do you refer to? No, when I'm at home, I'll do lots of omelets. But I cook chicken a lot. Um, mm. I don't eat much red meat, to be honest. But I'll have some red um, some lamb mince, uh, like a we do like a, a chili beef mince dish with um, loads of spices, and then finish it with chili, onion, ginger, and garlic, and it's like a dry mince. Yeah. yeah, and you sit yeah. it on baba ganoush. You throw it on, mm. yeah, fresh red radishes that have been just soaked in water and then been salted. Lovely. Oh, nice. So you've got that crunch, and then just pour two fried eggs on top of it. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds amazing. There's a question that I ask everyone: Do you have a store cupboard ingredient in your house that you know you always have, and you know if you travel, you take with you, and that kind of thing? Soy sauce. Soy mm. sauce. Mm. Soy. Yeah, I love it. I'm addicted. I'm, I love condiments. Yeah, I'm yeah. a condiment kid. So on my full English breakfast, which is like once every two months, I'll have mayonnaise. This is one of Heston's tricks, by the way. He taught me this. Yeah. Right. Mayonnaise, brown sauce, red sauce, mustard. Now I've added sriracha. Oh, right. so I've got up tested. Yeah, yeah. And I love dipping the sausage in a bit of everything and then the egg and... And I'm like, oh, it's like the condiments just make the breakfast. Maybe it's because of the art link, but I'm imagining almost, you know, it's like an artist sort of... It looks like that. It looks like a palette. An artist palette, yeah. Yeah, I've been her friend... It's bad because me and Heston, so we met in 2000, and we've been brilliant friends since, and his mind is incredible. Mm. And I think the guy that changed British gastronomy for me was him. Yes. Mm. And the way he looks at food and the way his mind thinks and his creativity, he's on another level, but... I love, we talk for hours when yeah. we talk because it's, we, we talk a similar language and yes. he's the only guy that I have that relationship with. Yeah, yeah. Out of all the chefs, I can only talk to him like that. Yeah, no, well, he's a he's a previous guest on this podcast. and He's um, next level, yeah, I love yeah, him. Yeah, and yeah, you're right. He's uh, he's great to talk to food about and I can see that you two would, would yeah, yeah be speaking just, the just same language. And, into uh, a rabbit hole and then yeah, yeah, come yeah, out Yeah, loving hours, that. Yeah. yeah, loving those rabbit holes. And also, it struck me that the notion of like, the journey as well. I've seen you talk about yeah. the 10 course menu at the restaurant at restaurant sat Baines as being almost like this, this progression, this play, this kind of, you know, this yeah. immersive exhibit. It is. Yeah. Cause I, I love going to theater. I love listening to you. So mm. I looked at other genres to say, how can you relate it to, to eating after three hours? Mm. Cause that's the only thing I can think of. Anyway, so you, you're almost taken on this journey, right? Emotions like, oh my God, what's next? So, <laughs> <laughs> I thought, what can you do that's two and a half hours mm-hmm. to relate? So I, I fell upon this thing called the Freytag Pyramid. And it's how you make 
it's that they're using theatre how to create a, a show almost like a play like you have a introduction that's like the introduction okay so our introduction so taking it from there we do the five tastes so if this little glass bowl with a little perspex with holes in and it says bitter salt sweet sour umami and each dish on its five little tastes and it's all the five tastes so there that's me introducing you to the characters of the whole night introduction yeah then it goes through all its plots of like you go cold hot sweet sour whatever then you get a crescendo which is the main course yeah and then there's a little twist because we have a thing called the crossover. So the crossover is something we devised in 2010, 2009, where everyone goes to like sorbet or something like a palate cleanser. We thought, well, still keep a savoury element. Let's slowly add a sweet element. So at the moment, we've got a sack, we've got cream rice pudding with salted raspberries with sake granita. And rice krispies. Wow! Oh, wow! So <laughs> it's so it's it's rice thrice. Yeah, you know I mean? yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's great. Oh, so <laughs> you've got this tiny little dish in a sake cup, and in the bottom is salted um, raspberries. You've got the beautiful puree of creamed rice pudding with vanilla. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Pinch of salt, <laughs> some candied rice krispies, then a sake granita served on top. So your mouth just explodes yeah, of yeah. sharp cold because you use nitrogen for the sake, granita. And then he's got salt, sweet, sour, creamy, <laughs> luxury, salt. And you're like, wow. what's, go- what's <laughs> going on here? <laughs> and the idea is to get you ready for dessert. Yeah. Hearing you talk about you know, in this incredibly interested, curious, thoughtful way and talk about theatre and um, artistic theories and stuff is maybe a bit against what some people's like view of you as this kind of uncompromising like chef yeah. sometimes that you're kind of like, you know, this kind of big, rough, tough, fearsome chef. Do you feel that sometimes that kind of, you know, what your nature is and what you're really interested in can get lost sometimes? I probably don't give people that side of me. It takes a long time to describe your ethos as a chef of 33 years. And this this is the perfect kind of platform but but to really understand it's thousands of little things that make up the big thing and I can't I can't stress that enough and it's down to the cutlery the tables made out of deer hide for a nod to Woolerton Park because they use deer so we don't use tablecloths and the table legs are made out of knives from block knives and the cutlery block is a block that's got three lots of cutlery on in a stack like a cassette so you don't have to have that pretension of looking around, seeing who's using what cutlery. You can use a spoon. So we've kind of made it more accessible as a two-star restaurant. So there's thousands of things we've done to give you... You don't really need to know about it as a guest, but there's a reason for every single thing you see or don't see, we've, we've thought about it. And I do, I'm doing that with just 10 dishes. Yeah, every day. yeah. it's incredible. Um <laughs> We should get onto the kitchen grill, shouldn't we? We Alison? should. It's kitchen grill time. Okay. Quick fire questions. You can explain. You can uh, elaborate on your answer. Um, tea or coffee? Tea. How do you have it? Both. Oh. <laughs> I, I'm drinking probably two liters of oolong a day at the moment. Oh wow! I love it, and I like a beautiful. We use difference coffee for our espresso capsules, which is yep. incredible. The mm. Jamaican Blue Mountain blows my mind, but I'm at the moment drinking just black filter. Lovely. Porridge or cereal? Oh, I love both. (laughs) (laughs) 
Porridge. Porridge. Yeah. I'm always surprised that cereal, you know, people still really love cereal. I thought it'd yeah, be like, porridge all the like way. Oh, like amazing. Oh. <laughs> With uh, natural honey and I put protein powder on it. Okay. Nice. Uh, fruit or veg? Oh, both. Veg, more veg. More veg. Okay. What about spicy or mild? Spicy. <laughs> mash or chips. Always chi- spicy, yeah. Mash or chips. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. That's a hard one. <laughs> so, you know. That's okay, always okay. The this one. is the problem, right? So, as soon as you said that, mash went to Jean Robichon's mash. Okay. Which is the best mash in the world, which is almost creamy. Equal, if not 60% butter. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Which is a small spoon and blows your mind. Yeah. Chips went to Heston's triple fried. So, yeah. I'm lost. <laughs> Can I dip the chip in the bash? <laughs> yeah. Okay. That'd be good. That- that would be amazing. <laughs> Very nicely done. Sight or smell? Sight. I'm a visual learner. Yep. Mm. Bacon or smoked salmon? Bacon. Bacon. Parsley or coriander? Coriander. Mm. I hate parsley. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it's that become this generic thing that everyone puts on. But have you ever eaten it when it's actually in a stalk and someone puts it on? It's like, like a cow. You're chewing for like an hour. <laughs> It's like I, I like it in very small doses. Yeah. But coriander is I know so many people that hate coriander. Yeah. What yeah, it is. It's really but divisive. They, the isn't smell, it? they hate they hate. They think it's sm- soapy, but it is it adds so much more flavour. I love it. I love mm, it. Love coriander. Butter or olive oil? I think we're predestined to love butter, but olive oil, olive oil. is good as well. So we use mm. many. Yeah. Olive oil, which is amazing. But uh yeah, I think butter. Butter. Mm. Oh butter, butter. okay. And then cheese or pudding? Oh, my God, is it killing me? <laughs> so I went, I did the first proper road trip across Champagne with two of our really good friends, oh. me and Vicky, with, with a man that we'd re, we drove. So we went from Folkestone, we drove to Champagne. Lovely. And we did the best tour of wines Lovely. you can imagine, right? Yeah. And we went to a restaurant, a two-star, they had this cheese ball that comes on a door. What wow, that's a huge one. Door. And then a little, <laughs> little bit, like a half door, like a stable door, okay, okay, next okay. to it, goes cheese. <laughs> so we're eating this cheese, and they, they said, yes, 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 like mixture. And I'm not lying, there's one cheese. And my mate did the same. And we had the hair stood on our head, <gasps> arms. We got this chill, and we almost like had an out of body experience, but we had to eat a poisse. To get rid of this taste, right? <laughs> it was that bad. That oh, good. So this local farmer makes it in an old, abandoned, must be like a drum on a tractor. <laughs> so it's highly illegal, but it blew my mind. It's called Sumatran or something like that. I can't remember the name of the cheese. But we had, so when you have to say we had to eat ipwas to get rid of this taste, it tells you how strong, strong it was. It was. <laughs> But it blew us away. Like, I mean, we couldn't stop. We had to go like, have another bite. Not. It's like it became like this thing, you know, like we were just obsessed. But I What, you were obsessed well, with how, so. how strong and how bad it was, but you kind of liked it. But it was it. so tasty. Right. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was yeah. the initial, like, it's rot, it's rotten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm like, God, yeah. I, want it. I need it. I need more. And was it you know really creamy? I mean? It was creamy. It was almost collapsed. Wow. It had this like uh, pinkish rind to it that was just knackered, like... <laughs> Uh, and we're like, what the hell is that? And it stunk, but we were like, and we talk about it today, it was like two years ago, we, we just talk about that cheese that we had to eat a poisse 
to get rid of the taste. <laughs> wow. So cheese. I'm, cheese. I'm guessing cheese rather than pudding. Cheese, yeah. Yeah. And that, that is the kitchen grill. Well... I think um, I think it's a, a perfect note to end on, really. And Satbades, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, thanks for your time, guys. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to Life on a Plate from Waitrose. I'm Jimmy Famarewa. Thank you to my co-host Alison Okavy and our guest Sat Baines. If you've enjoyed this conversation, you can find lots more like it by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about the series, go to waitrose.com forward slash podcast.